0: I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History
1: for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Garen. Today's topic is mass incarceration. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, so we've heard about kind of an introduction into mass incarceration, and now we're going to start heading down the History path. So, Garen, what do we need to know? Start us off. What's the history of mass incarceration?
2: So, let's start out by reviewing some of the history going further back and looking at how black people were viewed through time. So, during slavery, there's this feature that we've talked about before where white people who wanted to enslave and derive profits from black people, from black bodies also wanted to feel like good people at the same time we can probably relate to this today most, most people want to feel like a good person even when they're cheating or using cruelty to gain money we come up with ways to tell ourselves a story about ourselves that still leaves us as good people Yeah. and so all throughout history you see the white community would come up with justifications for why the things they were doing were okay and so during antebellum slavery, the one of the big justifications was the happy slave myth. They had this idea that they promoted and kind of advertised it was in the media or culture as it was at that time that slaves were just happy that they were better off than they would have been if they hadn't been brought over and enslaved. That they were content to work in the fields and sing songs and were eager to please and serve, there's this idea of like the tutelage of the inferior race that were actually elevating them and
1: civilizing them. Or they were just being nicer to them, like fed them really well and didn't whip them or anything like that. I've mm-hmm. heard things like, oh, they treated them different, mm-hmm. yeah. even though they still used them as bodies to do work.
2: Yeah, and so they they justified to themselves that, well, slavery... Maybe isn't ideal, but I mean, you can even see in the the writings of the founding fathers. Some of them said slavery is not ideal, but it's necessary, and there's these side benefits of it. It it kind of, in a way, is better for the enslaved, right? But it was a lie. I mean, the it, it was built on this false idea. It was undercut by the fact that enslaved people were continually fleeing through the Underground Railroad and other means of escape. They were always trying to escape, and many, many enslaved people did escape, even with the threat of death and danger. So it shows that they weren't actually happy or content, but that was the lie that white people told themselves. And with that, there wasn't a stereotype of black criminality because that would have undercut that myth. Black people were not viewed as being prone to criminal activity at all. They were seen as largely submissive. And there was some fear of... Uh, slave revolts, but the prevailing view of black people was generally that they were happy and content. Then after slavery ended, after emancipation, the justification that white people needed to use to continue to benefit from the racial hierarchy, the racial caste system, it shifted. So all of a sudden, where before, you had to kind of tell yourself that black people are content and happy, now Jim Crow rested on this idea that black people are dangerous. So we have to segregate them, we have to keep them in their own separate parts of society. We have to not allow them into our schools. And all that rested on this justification that they were dangerous. And the other aspect of it was that the 13th amendment that abolished slavery made an exception for criminals, for people who were convicted of a crime. And so all of a sudden there was a profit motive to see black people as prone to crime. And so they passed these laws, the black codes, that criminalize all kinds of aspects of black life, including things like not working on a Saturday or trying to work for someone other than the landowner that you were the sharecropper for. Like if you look for alternate employment, that was the crime of vagrancy. And you could actually be locked up for that. And in being locked up or in locking up all uh, these black people, they re-enslaved many of them through convict leasing. So one to 200,000 black people were re-enslaved after emancipation through convict leasing. And all
1: of that... And, res- we, and we did episodes on convict leasing. Mm-hmm. So
2: Yeah, this is a review,
1: if but there might be new listeners who... Yeah, if you're like, what is convict leasing? I didn't know what it was, <laughs> and it was super helpful to hear about that, so go back in our feed and listen to those episodes.
2: Yeah, and so all of a sudden, the the justification switched from you want to view black people as happy and content to you want to view them as criminals because now that's how we continue to dominate and use slavery by locking them up and saying they're criminals and convicts. And so the justification changed, and so the story changed, the story of how white people marketed and advertised and viewed black people. You can see this in the kind of pop culture at the time. Became the movie Birth of a Nation came out that showed basically it was like a person in blackface trying to rape a white woman and stirring up this fear of black criminality and they're like, Coming for our women, they're you know, we have to keep white culture safe from the dangers of black people.
3: Ooh, how exhausting.
2: Mm-hmm. And Woodrow Wilson watched it in the White House and it was acclaimed both by, you know, film critics and by presidents politicians uh, that was the cultural moment was this everyone was getting on board with this idea of black people are scary or criminals. We need to lock them up.
3: Yeah, he did a a showing at the White House. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And endorsed the the film. But then
2: In comes the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And the civil rights movement was this incredible, powerful movement that basically forced white people to contend with the darkness and evil of racism in a way that they couldn't do before. It basically removed the justification that allowed white people to be racist and also feel like good moral people. If you're not actually watching the police send the dogs after the peaceful black protesters, or if you're not actually watching the fire hoses be opened on them and seeing women and children and just peaceful protesters being terrorized, then you can kind of convince yourself in your mind that, you know, like the system of segregation is fine. It seems to be working. Black people have their way of doing things. And I don't go into their part of town and I have my way of doing things and I don't and you, you don't ever go into their part of town, so you don't ever see the way that police are terrorizing them, and you don't see the way that their facilities are utterly inadequate and that they don't have a sanitary line and that they their roads aren't paved. If you don't go there. And if you're a white person in those days, most likely you didn't really go there
3: much. And well, so Well, and I was gonna say, just real quick. You know, because you said the peaceful protesters, like we don't have to be peaceful for them to not have sick dogs on us and some of the things, you know, just this, it kind of speaks to like black people having to have some type of good behavior in order to not be punished for stuff we shouldn't be punished for in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I just want to kind of, I don't know, just, Mm -hmm. I'm in a space where we're talking about decolonization and deconstructing, just changing the language and I saw a post about this the other day, you know, like instead of saying slaves saying enslaved people and instead of uplifting you know these making distinctions between black people, which I know there's that's not what you're trying to do, but make instead of making distinctions about different type types of black people that all types of black people matter, and we're talking about police officers being weaponized against. Black people for their existence. But yes, the peaceful protesters um, having to be eaten, bit by dogs, water hoses turned on to them.
2: Just beat with batons. Beat
3: with batons. Just all this heinous activity, terrorism, white supremacist terrorism against black people. And the other thing is that white people could have always seen the heinous crime that enslavement was because you didn't have to be in the black part of town to see how black people were living to know at that time, I mean, you're looking at people whose parents enslaved people. I mean, you see the the imbalance. You see the marginalization. You see the lack of equity and equality. And so I, I just don't want to get white people... A pass for you know because you hear this thing like I didn't know what I didn't know they all knew mm-hmm. <laughs> they all so knew and there is no there is nothing that separated them and divided them from the reality of that inequality that 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 in inequality absolutely does that make sense totally yeah
2: yeah and that's that's really helpful because I would not want to be. Misunderstood as saying that the white people didn't know. What I'm meaning is that the the lies that white people told themselves became yeah. untrue to the point that they just couldn't even put
1: deny them up it. anymore. Yeah, because right. we so. we're we're really good at hiding things, both physically and even emotionally, mm-hmm. with knowledge and putting that into our culture of things that we just don't want to see. Things that are just kind of like maybe that's homeless people in our cities where we just need to get them... We just don't want to see it. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to see homeless people because then if they see homeless people, then they start to think, well, why are they homeless people? Mm-hmm. And then you start to care about them and then, you know, it's the whole thing of like why there's emotional commercials about kids in these third world countries. It's like when you see that, it hits different as... However you feel about those commercials. But it does like when you see a problem in real life, like a real person and it's affecting them, it's different than you know, your mom Abstract and dad knowledge. raising you and just telling you these subtle lies that grow over time where your culture is just completely trying to but. make up stuff for it. And that's a big difference of that versus like seeing it. Cause a lot of people don't see I would say everybody knew about it, but seeing that is, well, it does confront everybody, but you have to kind of come up with a belief system when you see that. Why is that happening?
3: But they were seeing it right there in front of them. They didn't need the television. And enslavement had, and, and Jim Crow was in existence and in effect that whole time. I understand the concept of, or the idea that just like the Vietnam War took a turn when people started to see what the soldiers were enduring. I get that. But at the same time, again, white people don't get a pass because you they did see it because mm-hmm. they lived it in their communities. They were actively treating black people horribly. There's There was an entire culture of how black people were treated. They were not one-offs and isolated events to where white people could just sweep it under the rug. Mm-hmm. I think it was white terrorism in America and the pressure they received from other countries. It wasn't what they were doing in America that mattered to Americans. It was what they were doing in America that mattered for other countries to point the finger at them. And so I don't think that America had a conscience. I think other countries going, what What are y'all doing over there? They were ashamed. They were shamed into doing somewhat right by us because you're, you got other countries seeing what they were doing to us. Yeah. So
2: so that is absolutely yeah. a big component of it. The Cold War was happening at that time. Right. And America was trying to recruit other countries to towards democracy, away from communism that was right. sweeping the world. And communism was using America, like the, the video that was playing on the news during the Civil Rights Movement was being used in propaganda videos by the communists to approach other countries around the world with non-white populations and say like this is how America treats their black and brown people like do you really want to become a democracy where this is what is actually happening in democracies so that propaganda was being used against America and making us look bad and it was pushing the world towards communism the thing just to kind of Clarify, I guess, what I'm, the argument I'm making with the, the civil rights movement is basically saying the same thing as what you're saying, Katina. Is I, I don't think it's so much stirred up the conscience of people as it took away their ability to to justify or lie to themselves that they're it. still good people. Yeah.
3: yeah,
2: and
1: like across the country.
2: Yeah, because across, I mean, if you're a southerner and you're okay with this, your conscience is hardened to it. But then all of a sudden, it's on the nightly news now. You can't just like go on with the status quo, yeah, be, telling yourself you're a good person, when the rest of the world is seeing it and saying like this is awful.
1: Yeah, it would be like your sin, like like an issue that you have that you kind of wrestle with, but you kind of lie to yourself. It's okay that I do this, and then it's on the news yeah, at night. And everyone's like, it. "Ooh, it feels." It doesn't.
2: It just exposed it in a way that forced white people to confront that about themselves, and they either had to go on with the racism, and just admit that, like, okay, we're not good people. Right. Or they had to change the racism into a form that could, like, not look so racist. Right. Or, obviously, the other option the, would be they could actually repent and love. But that was, sadly, not what happened. But that's exactly the point that I'm really making, is that sh- racism shifted under the banner of criminality. Right. So that white yes. people could then basically dismiss what was happening as, no, they're not doing this because these are black people. They're doing this because these are criminals. And so where previously there was permission to hate black people, like social permission. Explicit.
3: Now you hate criminals now, who happen to be black. Now right. you
1: hate criminals. And it's just that criminals happen to be black
2: right. in and most they, cases. And they
1: wouldn't question why. they yeah. just. And, and that's what's crazy is like you, again... You've got to either think that black and brown people are just inherently more violent, because mm-hmm. the disparity isn't like you know five percent more black and brown people. There's like a point where you, there's just disparities are so small that they're not. There's not like a big justification for it. Mm-hmm. But th- we're talking about disparities that are like tenfold and that some are cases. massive. Mm-hmm. That you wouldn't want in any any situation. Any- disparities that big. But then we just. What do you do with that? As a pro- you have to either believe. Black and brown people are more violent, which is not true, which has been proved even scientifically, in every way is not true. Or there's a system that is creating that disparity. Those are the only two options mm-hmm. that you can think. And one is racist and one mm-hmm. isn't.
2: Yeah. So in, in fifteen states, I think it's fifteen, there there are black people are convicted at drug crimes at a rate that is twenty to fifty seven times higher than white people. Mm. So there, obviously there's like a spectrum where some states are worse than right. others and like how unfair they are. But just looking at that, if black people are convicted at rates 20 times higher, even though black people are proven by many studies that they use drugs at similar and sometimes sell them at lower rates than white people. And then you have all these disparities, then it's like, it's officially colorblind, but it's being used to hide a shift in racism, a shift in racism that allows white people to, to feel like they're not racist, but still live in this status quo where white people receive all the benefits in society and basically rule society, remain on top and have all kinds of advantages. Because whenever you give a segment of your population disadvantages, it's like you're providing yourself with an advantage. And we have done that. I mean, black unemployment right now has traditionally been twice as high as white unemployment, Mm -hmm. basically for as long as it's been tracked. But then when you factor in all the black people who are in prison and can't compete for jobs because they're in prison, it's actually like another 7% unemployment that just comes from black people who are disproportionately in prison and so then that provides advantages to white people and there's other other ways in which mass incarceration has been used uh, so i mean the fact that when people get out of prison they lose all a whole bunch of rights it perpetuates a like a racial caste system that mm-hmm. has white people at mm-hmm. the top, but it does so in a way that is officially or like on the face of it, colorblind.
1: And you're and you're right. And this comes back to even what Katina was just saying mm-hmm. in our conversation of like, and and I feel this, it's like we want to come up, we want to come up with reasons why it was okay for white people to think and do the things that they thought and did. Mm-hmm. Like even in... Even in disparities in prison, it's like we, we don't want to admit. We just don't want to. No. It's so hard for us to be like, we really aren't good. Like just from a moral third party, look at the situation, we're not good. And we just try within with everything we have to just come up with reasons that we are good. Right. Instead of just being real and honest and we right. aren't good. And and I'm saying we as in, like, America.
3: No, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And it's
1: like, and and I don't want to give, but I feel the bend towards it of, like, I don't want to just say my parents were racist people that, like, what did you do? Why didn't you do anything? Because it's like, I could easily look at myself like, what am I doing? Why am I not doing You know, my kids are going to look back and be like, what did you do? And uh, I just want to, like, it's like I want to give them reason because I know I want to give my kids, I want a reason for my kids to think a certain way. And it's just this whole just fake veneer. Yeah, Like you're not actually, everything you're talking about is literally just things you're talking about. It's like about. image maintenance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not image mm-hmm. for
2: love's sake.
1: Yeah, and that's a problem mm-hmm. because that really does affect everything in your life. How you treat people, how you treat all different types of people, you know, economically, racially, everything, genders, Everything is based off of how you love, mm-hmm. and it just becomes Absolutely. very clear. You know, even in the debates that we have in our brain, even in my brain, that oh, I am just not loving, mm-hmm. and it's that's really difficult to come to grips with. Absolutely. But it's good. That's a good thing to mm-hmm. wrestle with. Who do you love, and who who don't you love,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: then why don't you love them? Yeah, Katina,
2: hearing that from me, like, does that kind of
3: No, it absolutely does. But there is a tension that's going to always exist because when you think about evangelicalism, there's this thing about racial reconciliation and wanting, and and there's this just demand on black people to give give us time, give us time, give us time. And so as we're giving white people time to wrestle through this stuff, we're dying mm-hmm. We've been dying We've been suffering um, Yeah we have to make it a certain so, way That's Right and so that's the struggle mm-hmm. And it's, it's just like while we're waiting For white people to arrive We're, we're suffering mm-hmm. And it's, it, it's like why, why is there a need to wait for Justice why is there a need to it, it, It's really just triggering To be quite honest because I'm thinking about during that time when those images were on television and my parents, and what they had to see and endure, and I'm just like, why, why, why did, why did justice have to be delayed, yet again? Because every with every wave of justice, so enslavement ends, but then there's Jim Crow, uh, convict leasing, and sharecropping, and then that ends and then there's redlining and you know there's integration but kids are being spat on and you know so th- then there's th- there, there's that shift and then there's ex- like mass incarceration and police brutality it, it's like when is it gonna st- when how long do you have to wait for human beings who bleed the same as you to have some damn sense. Mm.
2: And that's the sad reality that we're going to get into of mass incarceration is that it's it's made to be a durable form of racial caste. Right. Because it isn't explicitly racist, so it's, it's basically harder to pin down. In the absence of explicit racist language, it's harder to pin down in a way that proves to people who... Aren't trying to love, but are just trying to image maintain, like trying to think of themselves as not racist. It's hard to convince somebody who's in self justification mode that, hey, this system is actually cruel and unloving when they're just like looking to continue to reap benefits from the status quo. So yeah. it's designed to be a durable system. And so there's really has not historically been a sustained outcry against mass incarceration because. That's seen as like by politicians. It's seen as soft on crime, and it's not a winning stance in the American electorate.
1: And and we'd have to do something about it, yep. right? And, and we like, have. I to don't do- want to. I don't want to do anything about it. Right. Like, I don't want to change my life. So it's designed to be a durable system. The system but- is so durable that I mean, I'm like the product of a, of our system. Like, I didn't. My life didn't really change in these views until like seven years ago, and wow. I imagine like what I would have what would have been really helpful was like someone explaining this stuff as a kid and I could have handled different racial situations in my life completely different. But it's like, I had no idea. Like our culture is so shifty and sketchy at like hiding this stuff. You know, I didn't hear about it in school. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't seem that bad in school. And it's like, man, I, you know, I, I feel bad. Because it, I like a big chunk of my life, I didn't even realize this. Yeah, but like it's a it's a proven system, and it's like one of those things that once you see it, you see it. And man, I don't, I I just feel like I would have been a different person.
3: Yeah, growing right. Growing up, right.
1: And and I would have been, a, I would be a more loving person. So in 1956, let's get
2: into some of this <laughs> history of how this unfolded and how the the justification shifted. So in 1956, politicians in the South felt more than comfortable to be explicitly racist. So in Congress, uh, North Carolina Senator, Senator Sam Irvin Jr. drafted a racist polemic, the Southern Manifesto, which vowed to fight to maintain Jim Crow by all legal means. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Irvin succeeded in obtaining the support of 101 out of 128 members of Congress from the 11 original Confederate states. So politicians were nearly universally, in the South at least, willing to go along with an explicitly racist polemic and that shows where they understood their own electorates to be. But then what happened? Racism, racism, was exposed through the civil rights movement as being evil. It was used overseas in uh, propaganda by the communists uh, to basically say America is not actually out for your good. They're, they actually are just white supremacists and they don't really care about you. Um, you they, they ran this propaganda to other countries. So then you had politicians come to this dilemma all of a sudden the popular support for openly racist policies which had been a majority support where politicians could win elections running on explicit racism or explicit segregation. I mean during this era you have politicians just openly saying racist things all the time. That, openly having that, that, that our current supremacy. culture would be like oh my gosh Holy no cow. way. Yeah. Yeah, but it was just open racism. The popular support for that kind of open racism you just got a picture, it's like this sliding scale where it goes, you know, it's like 80%, 70%, 60%, 55%. All of a sudden it dips down below 50%. Where now a majority of the population, it's not that they were like loving black and brown people or wanting them to be equals, but they were no longer pu- openly, like they were no longer publicly supporting explicit racism. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, when that shift falls below 50%, politicians, like anything that's happening right around 50%, is what politicians are going to be really responsive to. Right. And all of a sudden, politicians just all realize this is no longer a winning strategy. We can't continue to just be openly racist and still win elections. So we have to shift our rhetoric in order to maintain support from that 49% of the population that still is fine with open racism. But we have to do it in a way that's subtle enough that we can still win the middle in order to keep winning elections. And so the strategy changed. And I think for some white people now like to conceive of the civil rights movement as if open support for racism fell in a day from 51% to 0%. As if America just stopped being racist whenever the civil rights movement happened. Yeah,
1: they would say the civil rights, like we—that's kind of it was the end we of racism in America, right? Which is absurd to
2: think that you could go from the lines of angry mobs on either side of Ruby's entrance into that school, like if you've seen those pictures and protesters um, as like schools were desegregating. To think you go from that to like a decade later, everyone's just like loving one another. That is absurd. What really happened is that popular support for that kind of open racism fell below 50%. So politicians, being responsive to the electorate, changed their strategy in order to maintain majority support. Politicians were still racist. I mean, even Nixon and Reagan had a conversation that was just recently... I
1: think in the last decade,
2: this conversation, which had been in the archives but had been partially redacted,
1: now um, you're, you're getting into like you know white evangelical. Oh. These are like our presidents you're talking about, here. yeah. So I'm and, a
2: little and here's what our president worried
1: about said
2: <laughs> what you're gonna say Reagan called Nixon the night after a UN meeting, and he said to Nixon, "Those monkeys from those African countries, damn them, they're still uncomfortable wearing shoes." Mm. And Nixon let out a huge laugh. Some of our listeners, you're like not even believing me right now that Reagan and Nixon had this conversation. Hmm. So we're gonna link to it in the show notes and you can listen to the audio. This is the president of the United States. This is them in a private conversation. This is not the rhetoric they weren't using this rhetoric openly, but this is where their hearts were. Like you don't accidentally make that comment. Like this is an exposing of what you're actually What's in your heart, and then your political rhetoric—that's like what your outward-facing strategy is.
3: Oh, Garen, it's just white locker room banter. That's that's
1: (laughs) the white justification, man. (laughs) So then that should make everybody feel extremely uncomfortable. And then Nixon later (laughs) later that day, our listeners are listening, right?
2: Later that day, Nixon spoke to his Secretary of State William Rogers, and he recounted the conversation with with Reagan and said that Reagan quote saw these, these, uh, these cannibals on television last night. And he says, Christ, they weren't even wearing shoes. And here the U.S. is going to submit its face to that. And then Bibi Bebozo, Nixon's best friend, later echoed Reagan in that conversation and said, that reaction on television was, it proves how they ought to still be hanging from the trees by their tails. Woo. And then Nixon again let out a huge laugh. Like These are the private conversations that these politicians are having while they have shifted away from openly racist rhetoric to this alternate rhetoric that is officially colorblind of crime and tough-on-crime stances. Conservative whites began once again to search for a new racial order that would conform to the needs and constraints of the time, and this process took place with the understanding that whatever the new order would be, It would need to be formally race neutral. It could not involve explicit or clearly intentional race discrimination. It had to be officially colorblind, but still appeal to these racist sentiments. So proponents of the new racial hierarchy found that they could install a new racial caste system without violating the law or the new limits of acceptable political discourse by demanding law and order rather than segregation forever. Ooh, that's like a hot phrase. Yeah, Law and order. It was then and it is now and it was popularized by this shift. So so a Nixon advisor, H.R. Haldeman, one of Nixon's key advisors, recalls that Nixon himself deliberately pursued a southern racial strategy. Quote, he, that is Nixon, emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this while not appearing to. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Special <laughs> I mean, that's like, what more proof? Oh, we, we have more proof, so let me list it off. <laughs> Special counsel to the president, hmm. John Earl Rickman, explained Nixon's administration's campaign strategy of 1968 this way, quote, we'll go after, that is, appeal to, the racists. That subliminal appeal to the anti-black voter was always present in Nixon's statements and speeches, end quote. Hmm. Republican strategist Kevin Phillips is often credited for offering the most influential argument in favor of a race based strategy for Republicans. Um, He wrote in The Emerging Republican Majority, published in 1969, that Nixon's successful presidential election campaign could point the way towards a long term political realignment and the building of a new Republican majority. If Republicans continued to campaign primarily on the basis of racial is- issues, but using coded anti-black rhetoric. And so then we come to law and order and the drug war. Uh, prominent segregationist senators, Mc- uh, McClellan, Irvin, who we mentioned earlier, and Thurmond, Strom Thurmond, fought to curb rights of criminal defendants. They, they wanted to make it harder for criminal defendants to defend themselves because this new strategy of mass incarceration was beginning to take form. All these segregationist leaders stopped using racist rhetoric and they called for, quote, cracking down on crime and law and order. And they chided the Supreme Court for, bending for quote, bending over backwards to help criminals. These leaders conflated, they also conflated the civil rights movement with street, uh, sorry, tripping over my words, And then these leaders also conflated the civil rights movement with street crime and violent crime. They basically put all crime and civil rights nonviolent disobedience under one kind of catch-all of uh, crime on the streets. And they talked about how we needed to end crime on the streets. But there was just a widely understood racial code to it. Uh, The political scientist Vesla Weaver said, quote, members of Congress who voted against civil rights measures proactively designed crime legislation and actively fought for their proposals. Just this shift in strategy towards crime and punishment. By 1968, 81% of those responding to Gallup agreed with the statement, quote, law and order has broken down in this country. And the majority blamed, quote, Negroes who start riots and communists. Nixon and segregationist George Wallace together that election earned 57% of the vote running on crime and punishment law and order platforms. So they, they were opponents of one another. There was three presidential candidates that year. So George Wallace was explicitly segregationist. Nixon was kind of in this new strategy of appealing to racists but with coded rhetoric. Um, Nixon, in that election campaign, dedicated 17 speeches fully to law and order. And one ad explicitly called on voters to reject the lawlessness of the civil rights activists and to embrace, quote, order in the U.S. And viewing the ad, Nixon reportedly remarked, quote, hits it right on the nose. It's all about those damn Negro Puerto Rican groups out there. Uh -uh. End quote. So Nixon called for a war on drugs, he called drugs public enemy number one, but he didn't fully start the war on drugs. He didn't take a lot of action, but he kind of started the rhetoric, got the rhetoric moving. The The war on drugs really picked up, we'll see, under Reagan. So again, quoting John Earl Rickman, the special counsel to the president, he just summarizes this whole section of this argument really well here. In a interview that he, he did like more recently, he talked about the Nixon campaign of 1968, and he explained that the Nixon White House had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. He, he, this is a quote. You understand what I'm saying? We knew that we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heav- heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did.
1: I mean, that's that's what's happening. <laughs> that guy is literally on the dot telling us that's, that, 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 is true. that it was true. And that it's made up, and that they made it up on purpose for a vote. Mm-hmm. That's crazy.
3: Here. I mean, that's... Everything you're saying, I think, is I mean, golly, dude. You can't have this discussion about mass incarceration without going to the root and the heart of what was behind it. It wasn't just some, like, fluky thing like, oh, they had the best intentions. They were just trying to, you know, handle crime because it was getting so bad. They're good people because, you know, people want to romanticize Ronald Reagan's crazy behind. Mm -hmm. They want to make him out to be this hero Like Dave Ramsey, the financial guru, said, I I sat in the audience and heard him say that, financial peace gurus say that Ronald Reagan was the best president in the history of America. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah? So was he? Mm -hmm. And a racist?
1: I'm sure we'll get to...
3: You know what I'm saying? It's like because they want to make it seem like, oh, people aren't perfect. Like, you've never been forgiven for something that you thought, like, shut up. Like, this is, there's a system here. There's a system that's been put in place by white power and privilege. And so let's deal with that. This is not like, oh, you know, individually flawed individuals. This is this is systemic.
2: Yeah, strategically imposed You know system. what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 So Michelle Alexander speaks to this in uh, her book, uh, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration and the Age of Colorblindness. And she says, quote, In the age of colorblindness, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So we don't. Rather than rely on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals and then engage in all the practices we supposedly left behind. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, denial of educational opportunity, denial of food stamps and other public benefits, and exclusion from jury services are all suddenly legal. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America.
1: We have merely redesigned it. I mean, that's exactly what I brought up. I was raised believing.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly
1: what she said. So Reagan then used coded rhetoric like
2: welfare queens and predators and the the word predator in that day was basically just what everyone had in their mind, in their mental picture, was a black person, even though black people committed, you know, a proportional minority of crimes. There was like a poll, like a research survey that was done where they actually asked people to close their eyes and describe a drug criminal, and even though drug criminals were somewhere like. I don't know what the exact percent was, but probably like 15% black. The it, Over 90% of people who described a drug criminal began to describe a black person.
3: Mm-hmm. Like
2: that was the mental conception of who these politicians were talking about. Because people, when you talk encoded rhetoric, like people living in that moment, they still know where the code's coming from. They know who is saying this and what those people were like, who they were from last decade when they were being more explicit. Like, it wasn't lost on anyone America knew in this shift That when we talk about predators What we're talking about is black people
3: And in the 80s, and even up to now The way the media even portrays black people And how they would say, a black man Like Mm -hmm. Florida man, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. a black man today Mm -hmm. A black man did this, or a black, you know But if it was any other criminal They wouldn't say, Mm -mm, they wouldn't say a white man. A Central Florida white man today. Right. (laughs)
2: Uh huh. Yeah. Yep. Um, And then racism made other kind of uh, subtle uh, nods, like in in Reagan's political campaign, he opened it in a notoriously racist location that had a racial history um, from the civil rights movement from like recently before, uh, with the claim that he supports state rights, which was again, kind of a coded coded racist phrase. Reagan's FBI cut in half the number of specialists assigned to identify and prosecute white-collar criminals and shifted his FBI towards street crime, especially drug crime. Which, pausing for a second here, because this is like a bigger part of the the conversation about mass incarceration. Most people do not realize white-collar crime causes far more harm in America in terms of the loss to our GDP than street crime. Yep. Uh, scientists, I mean it's like a little harder to measure but something, somewhere around 5% of our GDP is estimated to be lost to white collar crime like embezzling of money, bribery uh, like illegal monopoly action like, so white collar crime, when you have these wealthy white people Moving around billions of dollars illegally and like disrupting and distorting markets in order uh, or bribing people like taking cuts of money for public projects, that actually ends up causing far more harm to our society than all the petty theft and drug crime that we focus on. Yeah, you're saying
1: that economically,
2: economically,
1: it would, it would be beneficial to everybody in our entire country to not focus so much on street crime yeah
2: to well, you still want to focus on violent crime well i'm saying but you, you're but saying, not like the petty theft and like the, the drug crime Yeah, you're, that, you're saying that was
1: the drug war you're saying that that initial shift to white collar crime reagan no, no,
2: shifted resources from, away yeah, from yeah that's what i'm saying crime. you're
1: saying that that shift that reagan did Really, we should go back to that of really focusing more on white collar crime. I'm saying we
2: would all benefit
1: yeah, if everybody. there was more
2: policing of white
1: collar crime. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like from a moral standpoint, well, regardless of what, you've, what you, what even if you're a racist person, like mm-hmm. explicitly, this would benefit you. In
2: every way. Yeah. But the thing is it's not as scary. So politician like nobody so you, you take the people running Ponzi schemes that will end up stealing the life savings from tens of thousands of people. Yeah. And how many of those people end up dying as a result or committing suicide as a result of the loss of their money? But that, you know, white businessman in a business suit is not as scary to depict. And so and it's it's just like doesn't go with like the racial views that America has. And so we that guy maybe gets a few years in prison. A lot of these people committing these white collar crimes just don't even get charged at all. There's very little policing, but then even when they get caught, they oftentimes will get really light sentences cuz they can afford good lawyers with their earnings that they've made from the white collar crime, the money, and then they those, stole. and then those lawyers will drag it out, drag it out, drag it out, and then eventually take like some like slap on the wrist plea deal, um, just in order to get the case processed. And so, I mean, that's where uh, we we mentioned the quote uh, where Brian Stevenson said, "In this country, we our criminal justice system treats you better if you are rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent." And that's like the. True reality of, of crime and punishment in America, even though rich people and white collar crime ends up doing more harm, it's just the harm is a little bit less scary because it's more abstract. Because they're not taking money from your house, they are embezzling it from your four hundred one k, and it's yeah. So it's just not treated the same way, even though it's it's actually a much bigger yeah, it's harder for politicians hair. to
1: it's harder for politicians to emotionally try to control you to leverage that, to yeah. leverage yeah, your emotions yep. with white-collar crime. Inside yep. note, if anybody knows Brian Stevenson, Look, l- we want him on the show. hook us up with an interview. Yeah, give it reach out to us, you know, hello at dot Yeah, for real Conti- let's continue. <laughs> let's continue. <laughs>
2: um, so at the time Reagan declared the new war, this war on drugs. Only 2% of Americans view drugs as the most important problem facing And what, America. what year is it? What When are we talking about? Uh, so, I mean, this would be like, I don't know the exact year of his presidency that
1: he did, but we're thinking like 80, 82. Okay. Era. So we're talking like 30 years ago.
3: Yeah. I remember no, the war on ago. drugs and the just say no. and. The-
1: yeah, I grew up on just say no.
3: Yep. And this is your brain, and this is your brain on drugs, Friday. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So then, complicating things more, it, the government, in addition to kind of shifting resources away from white-collar crime, uh, and we kind of mentioned this, uh, Katina mentioned this last episode, but the CIA admitted in 1998 that guerrilla armies it actively supported in Nicaragua were smuggling illegal drugs into the United States. And drugs were making their way onto the streets of inner city black neighborhoods in the form of crack cocaine, so america they
1: admitted that in nineteen ninety eight
2: yeah, so more recently, but America basically prosecuted the drug war in a way that is not going after the actual systemic roots of the problem but was basically using it as
1: a justification to lock up people in black and brown neighborhoods
3: while well, they financially profited from it
1: and yeah, and you, they just admitted to like. On purpose, letting drugs into the country.
2: Not—that's probably an overcharacterization of what we actually have evidence for. But that's the well, a what lot of people we, speculate that that's what was really happening. Right. I think they admitted that they were actively supporting groups that were importing it, but I
1: think they didn't that's say like, that
2: they didn't fully make the connection of.
1: <laughs> right. That's like them saying it without literally saying the exact words. But yeah, that's very, very sketchy. Yeah, but it's like the government. Like right. The, the most official part of our society.
3: Right.
1: Being part of that is... yes. Yeah. Is- and then media jumped on
2: board. like So politicians all started using this rhetoric of uh, crime and scare-mongering, fear-mongering about crime and drug crimes and uh, public enemy number one is drugs. And then the media got on board just completely and was complicit in it. Uh, so the Washington Post, which we think now is being like liberal and... like I mean, I don't usually use the word woke, but that's probably like people would see Washington Post as being. This is going to be surprising. They ran 1,565 stories
3: Mm.
2: in one year about the drug scourge. I mean, that's like five a day. So just, and that's the Washington Post. Like, that's what all newspapers around the country, maybe not all of them, but that's what media is doing is joining into this frenzy and this fear mongering about predators and super predators and the drug scourge and all this is just kind of culturally catching on where at the front end of the drug war, nobody even thought that this was a problem.
1: Yeah, 2% of people. 2% of people.
2: So then in 1989, Bush characterized drugs as, quote, the most pressing problem facing the nation. And shortly thereafter, New York Times, CBS News poll reported that 64% of those polled the highest percentage ever recorded. Now, thought the drugs were the most significant problem in the United States. Repeat that again. How many? It went from two percent to sixty-four percent. Okay. It was two percent before the drug war started, and then sixty-four percent less than ten years in in nineteen eighty-nine. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Ku Klux Klan announced in nineteen ninety that they intended to join the battle against illegal drugs. Surprise, surprise, by becoming the eyes and ears of the police, and. Clinton, once elected, made things even worse. Uh, yep. He endorsed the idea of a federal three strikes and you're outlaw, which he advocated in his 1994 State of the Union address to enthusiastic applause from both sides of the aisle. Basically, crime and punishment, law and order, became such a winning issue that both parties began to try to outdo one another in being tough on crime, which really meant locking up millions of black and brown people and so then the, there, Clinton sent a 30 billion dollar crime bill in August 1994 and it was hailed as a victory but as the Justice Policy Institute has observed quote the Clinton administration's tough, tough on crime policies resulted in the largest increase in federal and state prison inmates of any president in American history
3: mm-hmm.
2: Clinton more than any other president created the current racial undercast. By 1996, money was reallocated from food stamps to prisons. Funding that had once been used for public housing was being redirected to prison construction. During Clinton's tenure, Washington slashed funding for public housing by $17 billion and boosted corrections by $19 billion, like a really similar amount, effectively making the construction of prisons the nation's main housing program for the urban poor. 90% of those admitted to prisons for drug offenses in many states were black and Latino. But the mass incarceration of communities of color was explained in racial, uh, race-neutral terms, so it adapted to the needs and demands of that political climate. So then this led to a point where major, in major cities that have been wracked by the drug war, as many as 80% of African-American men in some major cities now have criminal records and are thus... Uh, they're subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. yep eighty percent that basically I mean think of all the old forms of racism that are no longer socially acceptable, and then we think that we're past racism when really in in many American cities, eighty percent of men are still legally subjected to all the same discrimination only under a different lens. so Michelle Alexander points out that it is not at all obvious that it would be better to be incarcerated for life for a minor drug offense than to live in the Jim Crow era with one's family even under all the racism that they were subjected to like have we really made progress when actually being locked up for life for marijuana
1: possession as some people are something just so petty yeah it's it's in thinking about it we paint this picture that slavery was really bad okay mm-hmm. we let's all say slavery was bad and it ended and we're, we're never going to go back to that that's as worse as it can get it's but this she's painting the picture that it's not necessarily like physical physically abusive worse you know she's painting the picture that like all the rights almost that that Was a better life for somebody than what you're saying is a like a minor drug offense in life in prison? Yeah, if you're just locked up, that is so hard to imagine. It's like we've been we've been told slavery is as bad as it got, so it can't be. So if it's better than that, which you know now it is, it's better. Everything there's nothing as bad as that, and you're and then someone's painting that picture of like, well, this is like in some ways worse. That's Mm -hmm. so backwards in my mind. That it's like you. I feel like as someone listening to that. You just have to wrestle in your brain with wow. It just, and like Brian Stevenson would say, slavery didn't end in 1865. It has just evolved. Mm-hmm. And this is like hopefully even last episode and especially this one has painted that picture of like oh my gosh, it really did evolve. Like it 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 did. And here's how. And you have given us all the facts and stuff. But to, yeah,
3: so how's to that hear for progress?
1: Yeah, it's it's. And it's crazy to think that I don't know. I'm 33, and I'm just like, man. Mm-hmm. It just is. It's a. It's crazy to hear all this because it's, yeah. it's it's turning my world upside down.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where do we go from here? We we're still just kind of halfway through this series. So next episode, we're going to be talking more about how the drug war actually worked. Like, how did it? Like we've seen from the politicians what the goal was, kind of under the under the hood, what was the actual goal they were trying to accomplish. And then we need to see like how does it actually accomplish that? How did how was it designed to work? Many of you will be surprised to find that police departments were initially not on board with the war on drugs. Initially police departments around the country thought this is silly. Again, two percent of Americans thought that drugs were a major problem facing the country. Uh, so, like, why are we going to put all of our resources and energy towards this? So we're going to have to look at how that shift happened and how politicians got police on board and uh, convinced America that this was the right way to go. And then we're going to look at the injustice and start to look more at the injustice of the, the war on drugs and mass incarceration and the ways that it systematically deprives poor communities especially of justice. And how it's really operates much more as a a war on poverty, a war, not, not on poverty itself, but on the poor by having, uh, there's a lot of aspects of it that just basically punish people for not having resources. Um, So that's where we're headed.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. For $5 a month, you can help support the show and vote for future topics. So check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will continue discussing mass incarceration.